So if you can open your Bibles to James chapter 3, James chapter 3, we're looking at 12 uh, verses, the first 12 verses of, of chapter 3. Let me read that for you. Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue set among our members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? Many years ago, when I was in seminary, I, one of my professors named Dr. Montoya was, was talking about, uh, uh, to the class, the, the power of the tongue and the weight of impact our words can have on others. He, he, he told the story of a, a of a, a time when he was at his son's football game and his son's team was losing pretty badly. And so my professor, he started encouraging the team from the sidelines and he was calling out each player by number and name. And as the, as the game went on, he, he noticed just how the kind of the, the team started playing better. The, the crowd got into it and, the, and, and just the difference, his, his words of encouragement had, had made, it seemed like it was reflected in the, in the, even in the final score. And it was a was a great story. And around the same time, I had had a part-time as a security guard at a Christian high school, Los Angeles Baptist High School, and they were, they were called the Knights. And three hours a day, I would walk the grounds and make sure no, no squirt gun fights would get out of hand. And I was making my rounds within, within days of my professor telling that, that story. I, 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 uh, I walked through the gym as the boys' varsity volleyball team was getting warmed up to play, to play their game. And it was obvious, you look at the other the opposing team, and they were clearly taller, more athletic, more skilled, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the Knights looked more like the, the Bad News Bears. And sure enough, as the first set began, the, you know, the, the home team, they were getting beat up. The, the score of the first set ended with something like 25 to 4. Uh, it was just a, it was slaughter. The, and the mood of the gym, it was, it was stale, it was dead silent, you know, no energy, and uh, there was any feeling that was present, it was, a, it was pity for the home team. Even 
even the crickets in the corner were all passed out in boredom. And uh, as I was sitting there, you know, watching this pathetic display of athletics, I, I was reminded of the story that my, my professor told in the, in the power of, of words. Now, I didn't doubt my professor's version of events, but part of me thought maybe it was just a coincidence, you know, and maybe this, his son's team started playing better, you know, just at the time he started talking, and, and, and so he kind of, there was that. So I, I decided to conduct a little spiritual experiment in that gym on that fateful day, and I, so I looked around, and then I sheepishly began encouraging each player by name and number, and the first time I, I kind of said it, <laughs> my voice echoed, you know, and People are like, who is this strange man? And when I started cheering on the team, it was in the middle of the, in the second set. And the score was something like 14 to 3. It was really, the other team had a really low score. But as I got more confident and louder in my words of encouragement and exhortation, the team noticed we started playing better, you know? And it went from 14 to 4 and 17 to 8 and 20 to 13, 25 to 17. And I was... And I was just calling out players, you know. I was getting all, I was confident too. And I was like, hey, hey, what's his name? Oh, David, come on, David, you can do this. And I was, and uh, now the, 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 the home team still lost the second set, and I was kind of encouraged, but I, was, I still wasn't sure if this was just a coincidence. So I said to myself, okay, I'm going to stay from the third set from the very beginning. I'm going to do my thing, and I want to make sure that this whole power of our, of our words is really legitimate. And so the third set begins, and from the first serve, I, I, I just, I'm calling people out, I'm, I'm encouraging them, and the mood of the team and the spirit of the gym is noticeably different. I mean, the, the energy of the place was, you, you could tell something had changed, and, and the game was, was, was close the whole way through. I mean, back and forth, it was tied at one point up and one point down, it was, it was a nail-biter. I mean, everybody you could tell was playing better, except there's one little, one little short Asian guy who was a setter, and he wasn't responding to me, you know? And I would say, come on, let's go number 11, you know? And he just kind of gave me this look, like, leave me alone. I, so I thought to myself, how am I going to encourage this guy, this recalcitrant pardon sinner, you know? And I'm like, should I, should I, should I rebuke him? Maybe just a little rebuke? You know, this is a small rebuke, not a big one. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And so the ball kind of lands, he kind of near him, and he just kind of lazily kind of goes this. And then I said it, and I said, hey, Park, you can do better than that. And he turned, he just gave me a little a, a, a look, and it was like I flipped the on switch of his life on. And suddenly he was energized, inspired, motivated, and the, the ball was about to go out of play, and and, the, and, the, and, the, and this little guy, he, he saves the ball, teammate spikes it, and they win the point. And, and, and they win the third set. They win the third set. And the, the crowd in the gym and the, and the entire team, they reach this fever pitch frenzy. And everybody's screaming and cheering. The other team can't believe it. I'm screaming inside myself. I'm like, well, my professors, that story was true. I can't, I can't believe that our, that our words have this kind of power. So after the third set, I was thinking, well, should I stay? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not my calling to win volleyball games for Christian schools. So I, I left, and I don't know who won the game. But I learned a, an important reminder about the power of, of our words, the power of communication. 
I experienced at that volleyball game. And, and what James is gonna, was going to tell us and affirm about that experience is that your words possess great power and influence over others. So far in the book of James, we've covered and thought about a divided faith, divided conviction about the nature of God, a, div a divided response to God's word, a, a divided way of treating people that, that all could be the result of a, a counterfeit faith that doesn't work. And in today's pa pa uh, passage, we continue through this letter and, and look at one of the most important works of faith, the work of human speech. In, this inter in the introductory chapter of ch Chapter 1, James uh, introduced the topic briefly when he defined the nature of true religion. He said in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue but deceiving his own, his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now in a new major section starting from James 3, 1 and, and ending in James 4, verse 12, uh, James now addresses the, the corporate nature of what a, a wholehearted Christianity looks like. And he begins that section, the section, expounding on the nature of, of speech. Um, and what James wants uh, us to concentrate on the most when it comes to our words is this. Your tongue wields great power and influence. Your tongue wields great power and influence. And so we're going to consider four main thoughts this morning that, that intersect with that focus about the power of your tongue. And the, and, the, and the four points are these. Let me give you them at the outset. Number one, the, the prescription for teachers, the potency of the tongue. Number two, the precariousness of the tongue. And number four, the profession of the tongue. Prescription, potency, precariousness, and profession. Let's consider the, the first point, the prescription for teachers. James says in verse one, do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we all, we will receive a stricter judgment. You see, if there's one position in the church that many desire, it is the privilege of being a teacher or a leader or a, a biblically recognized office of deacon and, and elder. And that desire is a noble desire. It is a good desire to have. You want to have that desire. Everyone here should have the desire to one day Become recognized and serve as, a, as an elder or, or, a, or a deacon. You don't have to be a sh shy about that or embarrassed about the, these roles in the church. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. But here in, in verse 1, James, he, he pumps the brakes a little bit about that sort of enthusiasm, and he's going to talk about the issue of, of teachers in the church as a as a launching pad for his wider warning about the tongue and, 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 and what he will warn teachers and aspiring leaders about are the, the higher standards of, of, of speech that God requires for that. Teachers are more susceptible to judgment than others because we regularly engage in activity that is the hardest area to keep from sinning in the activity of talking and speech. I am especially vulnerable to failures in my words spoken because my role demands that I talk so much. I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm in meetings, I'm counseling, I'm working with you individually on particular ministries, I'm evangelizing with Peter every other week, I'm, I'm welcoming and getting to know new guests, I, 
I have to fellowship with you all and see how you're doing. I have to, I have to call you and, and I'm publicly praying. And this is what a, a leader or a teacher is typically doing. But with more words come more errors. When you speak that much, it's very easy to become careless with your words. And depending on the maturity of the person I'm ministering to, one wrong word or one careless statement, a, a tone of voice that is slightly off, all that can provoke degrees of offense or anger in somebody. Uh, sometimes it's, it is my fault I say something just not right, or sometimes it's not my fault. And, and, the, and the anger that, that I'm seeing is anger that's been in your life before I ever met you. But God says regardless of how at fault the other person is in overreacting, the teachers will receive a stricter judgment nonetheless because that is the nature of ministry. The, the teachers and leaders in the church, we're called to minister to all kinds of people, the rebellious, the immature, the, the hypocrites, not just the faithful, not just the mature. And the, and the words of a teacher, whether in a, a public setting teaching or, or in a private setting talking about personal matters, the, the, the kind of degree of influence a teachers wield in the church is eternal. It has a, an eternal impact. That's what you're getting into when you become a, a teacher and a leader of the church. And so teachers need to know that they will receive a, a, a stricter eschatological judgment when Christ returns. You have a, a stewardship for others in the church of Christ that, that he will hold you accountable to. And, and false teachers will experience a hotter hell than the rest of, of hell's occupants. And, and true believers who, who teach in the church will face higher standards of eternal rewards. And so we move from the prescription to teachers in verse 1 to the potency of the tongue in verses 2 through 6. The potency of the tongue as James moves away from the, the specific application to teachers to a, to a general prescription for the entire church regarding the power of the tongue. Specifically, in particular, James wants to highlight one specific quality about the power of the tongue, and it's this. The tongue, which is really small, a few inches long, an inch wide, wields power much beyond its size to control the larger part to which it belongs. The, the tongue, comparatively small to the rest of your body and your life, has a, a massive disproportionate effect and it exercises a great asymmetrical influence compared to its square footage in your mouth. See, at that volleyball game I told you about years ago, there were coaches with big brains filled with, with plans and strategies and years of volleyball experience. There were tall bodies of people with long legs and long arms muscles in the shoulders and the biceps and, the, and their calves and thighs. They were chiseled, full of strength and conditioning. There were weeks and months and years of practice that goes into becoming a, a volleyball player. And, and all that was on the side of the, of the LAB Knights. And, and it didn't seem to be getting the job done. And then there was this kind of a bored seminary student with a mere two-ounce slab of mucous membrane in my mouth and the effect of my tongue in my mouth speaking words had a far greater impact, a 
for so small a size in comparison to all the other components that were involved in that game. Verse 2 begins with the, the reality that we all, we all sin in many ways. There's never a day that goes by where we don't sin in a variety of ways. Verse 2 says, where we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. We all sin in many ways, but there is one area of our spiritual lives that is more a, that is more a mark of maturity than others. James says that the main mark of, of authentic spiritual maturity is the ability to control your tongue. And our words have this massive impact on our spiritual condition in this way. If we're able to control our words, James says, we will also have the ability to control all the rest of the actions of our lives. If sanctification is making an impact in the, in the way you, you speak to others, that sanctification will also be in, in, invariably impacting all of the, the rest of the stuff of your lives, your decisions, your actions, your, your thought life, your emotions, your responses to trials. And so if you direct all your spiritual energies to, to the way you talk, the way you use your words, there will be this collateral effect on the entirety of your spiritual life. James is not saying in, verse, uh, in these verses that, that we control our lives by controlling our tongues. He rather says that, that if we can control our, our, our tongues, we will also be able to control the rest of our life activity. It, it's an argument from greater to, to, to lesser. The tongue is the hardest thing to control about you. So if you can control that, you're, you're going to be able to control all the lesser things of your life which is everything we do besides talking. And that's saying a lot. And maybe you're doubting that. Maybe, maybe you're even doubting my volleyball story. Maybe that's, that was just a coincidence. Maybe the team would have played better had you said nothing. And so James, in the following verses, he anticipates that objection and that doubt, and he launches into a series of illustrations from everyday realities. He's saying... This, this concept of this uh, something small controlling something big, it's in your face. It is an everyday dynamic. It is common as, as bread and butter. And so he gives these, um, these, uh, these series of, of illustrations to, to reinforce the truth that a comparatively small member like the tongue has influence out of all proportion to its side. And he, and so he, in verse 3, he compares the tongue to the bit that controls the horse, to the rudder that steers the ship in verse 4, and to a spark that causes a fire in verse 5. Verse 3, he says, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we need to direct their entire body as well. Ever looked at a horse? You ever seen a horse competition or a horse race or a, those... Uh, Equestrian people, and, and, and you know that horses are powerful, powerful animals. If you take 555 pounds, and that's, that's about as much as an Olympic heavyweight lifter can hoist over his head, you take 550 pounds and you, you put it on a horse's back, the horse will barely break a sweat. The same horse, unburdened, can spring a quarter mile in about 25 seconds. 
In other words, a horse is a, a half a ton of raw power. And yet, you put a, a little bridle and a bit about a couple of inches in length, you put it in its mouth, and a hundred and pound person on its back who, who knows what he's doing can literally make that horse jump over a seven to eight foot wall. And the key verse in verse three is, is, the, is the last phrase. And James says, we direct their entire body as well. As the bit and the bridle determines the direction of the horse, so the tongue can determine the entire destiny of your life. If you're able to exercise careful control over your tongue, you will be able to direct your entire life to a beautiful and blessed destination. The narrow road to a glorious destiny is the narrow road of being able to control your words and your speech. Being having the ability to speak words that are godly and edifying and encouraging. Is there anybody uh, living in their house? Anybody young? Anybody under the age of, of 18? This is, really, this is really for you. That you want to really think long and hard about how you speak to your mother and your father and how you, how you talk to your siblings. Because the way you speak to them is setting a trajectory uh, uh, toward a destination 20 to 30 to 40 years into the future. You can decide now where you want to go in your life tomorrow just by how you talk to your parents today. If you want to go somewhere sad, if you want to go somewhere hopeless, if you want to ruin your life, you just keep mouthing off to your parents and you'll get there. But if you want to go somewhere beautiful, if you want to go to a place full of light and well-being, James says, take the reins of that wild horse of your tongue and keep that little muscular movable structure attached to the floor of your mouth under control. You're in a dangerous place if you're unable to control your tongue. And the best way to, to plan for your future is by controlling your tongue today. James' second illustration in verse 4 makes the same point as the first illustration that very small things can direct very large things. And James contrasts very large, great ships with rudders that are very small. James says in verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are directed by a very small, small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. The ship here is driven by strong winds. That word strong, is it means violent, rough, hard winds. Even in the trial of a storm, if you're able to control the small rudder of your words, you'll be able to navigate the ship to the shore of godliness, the shore of blessing. In, in verse 4, the, 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 the emphasis is on the will. It's on the will. Look at the end of verse 4. Wherever the inclination of the pilot wills, let the Spirit fill your heart and allow Him to control your will. If you repented of your sin and and turn to Christ by faith in the gospel, mom and dad, you can always change. There's never a day when you cannot change and become a better parent. No matter how old you are, no matter how old your kids are, 
can always change and become a better parent. You never have to hold your ground and have this sort of prideful posture where you're like, kids, this is as good as it's going to get. You can take it or leave it. You know, whenever I have a bad parenting day, whenever I'm discouraged by the way I yelled at my boys or said unkind things or used the harsh, rough tone of voice, I always encourage my heart at night before I go to bed and I tell myself, George, tomorrow you can be a better parent. Tomorrow you can change. Because I have the Spirit of God permanently indwelling within me, I can redirect my will toward godlier, patient parenting. And when that happens, the first thing that I think about are the ways I speak to my kids. R. Kent Hughes wrote these words, The tongue so tiny is immensely powerful. The tongue is mightier than generals and their armies. It can fuel our lives so they become fiery furnaces of negativity, or it can cool our lives with the soothing wind of the Spirit can be forged by hell or can be a tool of heaven. And that's nowhere more truer than in the context of the strong winds of parenting. James advances his argument to say that not only does the tiny tongue like the bit in the rudder possess power out of all proportion to its size, it also has the potential to, pr to bring great disaster out of proportion to its size like the spark in a dry forest, verse 5. So that also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. We know this by experience. We've been hurt by words. We've hurt others by our words. And we use our words sinfully because we know just how powerfully devastating our words can be. That's why we say them. Remember when, you, when I was younger and I, I used to be called names and, and people say, don't worry, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names can never hurt you. And, and James saying that that's not true. That actually your bones can heal in a few months. You can heal from cuts and bruises, but words, the pain and the sorrow of something said to you can, can last a lifetime. One Sunday in October 1871, the great Chicago fire destroyed over 17,000 buildings. The fire lasted two days, cost 250, 250 lives. Ironically, however, that wasn't the greatest inferno in the Midwest that year. Historians tell us that on the same day of the Chicago fire, a spark ignited a raging fire in the north woods of Wisconsin that burned for an entire month, taking more lives than the lives in Chicago. A firestorm destroyed billions of precious timber, all from just one spark. And the tongue, James says, has that scope of inflammatory capability. James is saying that those who misuse their tongues are guilty of spiritual arson. And so at the beginning of verse 6, James abandons the use of similes and where he said the tongue was like the bit and the rudder and the and the spark in favor of a, of a more straightforward straight metaphor. And in verse 6 he says, the tongue is a fire. It is a fire. To, to strengthen the point that he made in verse 5. James's paraphrase might be, be this in verse 6. I, I'm not exaggerating. The tongue is, is really a fire. And verse 6 says, 
tongue is, as he continues, it is the very world of unrighteousness. As small as the tongue is, by virtue of being the most difficult of all parts of the body to control, the tongue becomes a conduit by which all the evil of the world around us comes to expression in us. Perhaps no other member of the body wreaks so much havoc in our lives. And then James continues in verse 6, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. When he means defiling the entire body, he doesn't mean just the physical body. He means the person as a whole. The, the tongue destroys true religion and it, it destroys this ability to keep yourself unstained by the world. He, he says in verse 6, it, it sets on fire the, the course of our existence, our entire life, from beginning to end. All the ups and downs, the tongue can destroy it all. See, when we speak evil of others, when we speak evil to others, we, we don't just set on fire the person we're talking to. No, it's also like we're, we're dousing ourselves with kerosene and lighting our entire lives in a blazing flame of inferno. That evil words, yes, they destroy others, but listen, evil, evil words destroy ourselves. But where does this fire come from? Where does this massive destructive force come from? It comes from, and, and James says in verse 6, it comes from hell. It is set on fire by hell that the power of Satan himself gives to the tongue its great destructive power. That the, 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 the tongue, out of control, has a direct pipeline to hell. That every time you sin with your words, you're bringing hell to earth. Every time you sin with your mouth, you're bringing the fires of hell into your home, into your family, into your church. That's how destructive it is. It's, it has more destructive power than a, than a hydrogen bomb. A bomb can take away lives physically and temporarily. The tongue's destruction is, is spiritual and eternal. What are some specific ways our, our tongues can set our lives and the lives of others on fire straight from hell? The most common one is gossip. Proverbs 10.18 says, And he who spreads a bad report is a fool. And we're not only are we masters of gossip, we're, we're masters of hiding or veiling our gossip into acceptable, acceptable conventions like, have you, have you heard? Did you, did you know? I don't believe it's true, but I heard that. Or, or well, I wouldn't tell you, but I know you're very trustworthy, and this is going to go nowhere after you. The, the famous one in, in church circles is, hey, we, we, I need to tell you this. We're gonna, we're gonna pray. We need to pray for this person. A cousin of, of gossip is innuendo. It's the word unsaid. It's that awkward silence. It's the raised eyebrows. It's the quizzical look. It's, it's all cooked on the fiery coals of hell. Flattery is the opposite of gossip, but it's just as evil. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his or her back. There's criticism. Criticism can take many forms, but it's always motivated by doubt and jealousy. There's meanness, boasting, outburst of anger, blasphemy, snarkiness. 
You see, when a marriage falls apart, there is invariably uncontrolled tongues setting the relationship on fire. You ever get into an argument with your spouse and you're, and you're saying unkind, sinful words to each other? James wants you to picture you, the husband-wife, pouring gasoline, kerosene in the house and lighting the fire. I mean, that is what you're doing. And that, and that mindset, those words start with the, with the wrong mindset. It starts with the wrong direction where, 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 where spouses think that, that they are responsible for changing the other person. Where they think that they have the power to change their marriage partner. And that mindset directs the will. And then the will, sailing in the wrong direction, produces words that complain and criticize and condemn. But a good marriage, or a bad marriage that's turning into a good marriage, begins by one or both of the spouses realizing they have no power to change the other person. And yes, we encourage one another, and we pray for one another, and we confront sin lovingly, and we exhort and rebuke, but we do not have a modicum of any real power to change the other spouse. See, that part is all between God and them. And the only one that you can change is yourself. See, all your energies for change must be directed to yourself alone. When you realize that, when you realize that, then it, then it frees the person to, 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 to speak words to your wife or husband that, are, that, are, that aren't so weighed and burdened by this unrealistic pressure to change your spouse. See, on the other hand, if, you're, if you think you can change your spouse and your husband, your, your, your speech will be peppered or filled at times with complaining or criticizing or condemning because you think that by doing that you can change the other person. Well, we go from the prescription of, for teachers to the, to the potency of the tongue. And now to point number three, we go to the, to the precariousness of the tongue, verses 7 and 8. James says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Have you ever been to a circus? Have you ever seen men or women get elephants to stand on one leg? Or you see lions that kind of walk and kind of dance like ducks or they put on ballerina things and and if you know I went to an international high school in Korea in high school and for our senior trip, we went to Thailand, and there we visited an alligator farm where this guy, he opened this alligator's mouth and he stuck his head in its throat. See, I've seen a man stick his head in the mouth of an alligator, but I've never seen a person who in their own power could tame the tongue. Sooner or later, you get to know the person, sins of speech come out. And James, in these verses 7 and 8, he tells us that the tongue is a monster of inconsistency. It is a monster of caprice, of, of, uh, full of deadly po of venom. Uh, verse, verse 8, it's, it's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The, the tongue is like, a, is like a cobra. The tongue is like a rattlesnake. I had a roommate after seminary who was a, who was a professing believer and, and, uh, but he, he, he liked snakes. He had a boa constrictor. 
and he would buy mice and all the time, and he'd feed it to the snake. And I was a I was a um, I was an exterminator for a little bit after uh, ex after uh, seminary, and uh, I would bring home dead rats, and we kind of throw them in the microwave and heat them up and give them to the snake. He also had a rattlesnake. He also had a rattlesnake that he had in an empty fish tank. It was covered. And rattlesnakes, if you don't know, they're cold-blooded, and they, they don't move like a dog or a cat. They, they don't react quickly. It takes a while to rile them up. So once in a while, when I was bored, I would just kind of I would tap on the glass, you know, and I would tap one on, and, I, and, and my goal was not to flinch when he struck. You know, that was my goal. So I'd do it. And, and every time that I did that, and every time the rattlesnake would strike, I would just flinch every time. Because even behind the protection of a glass wall, I, I could still feel the danger of the snake. And James says, that's how dangerous your tongues are, that our words are full of deadly poison, that they destroy ourselves and others with that kind of lethality. But what makes our tongues so scary is that outside of Christ's power, no one can tame the tongue. And no one has the ability to put the rattlesnake of other people's tongues behind the glass wall where it can't hurt anybody. Tongue is a, verse 8, it's a restless evil. It means unstable. That word restless means unstable. It was the same word used in James 1.8 to describe the double-minded man unstable in all they do. That mankind, we can control the the largest, most savage beast in the animal kingdom, but without the power of saving grace, we cannot control this itty little bit of, of, of tongue in our mouths, which is, which is the far more dangerous animal. See, if you don't know Jesus Christ, James says that little tongue in your mouth will ruin your life and drag you to hell forever. That only a regenerate heart permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, fueled by the ordinary means of grace, has the ability to restrain a weapon so dangerous. But why is the tongue so impossible to control by human means? Why is the tongue so impossible to control by human means? And the answer is this, because the tongue is simply a conduit of the heart. And only the gospel and only the, the message that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead can conquer and renew an unregenerate heart. And this leads us to the final point of the sermon. We go from the precariousness of the tongue to finally the profession of the tongue. Verses 9 through 12. James ends this section of chapter 3 with these words. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? The tongue simply professes what's in the heart. And what it, the tongue constantly professes what the tongue constantly reveals to us is that we have divided hearts. That we have divided hearts. There is nothing more accurate than the tongue in giving you a clear assessment of the health of your spiritual life. 
Yes, your emotions can give you some insight of what's going on inside of you. Yes, obviously actions and deeds do that as well. But the tongue is the best barometer of spirituality. And what the tongue reveals is that often that our hearts are divided. And James uses three illustrations to hammer that point home. He says in verse 9 that we bless the Lord Jesus and the Father Sunday morning. We sing, were you there? We sing, how great thou art. And we, we sing uh, on the way to heaven. And then on Sunday afternoon, we, we curse Bob or Sally to our roommates. We trash we trash the deacons. We, we criticize the pastors. Man, that, that was a boring sermon. Cursing any person, uh, James says in verse 9. No matter how depraved, no matter how you think they deserve it, every human being has been made in the image of God. They've been made in the likeness of God. And because we know that sin has not absolutely neutralized that image, every person, unbeliever, believer, they possess an inherent dignity and honor. And, and words about people made in the, in the likeness of God, you're indirectly cursing God himself. You're, you're blaspheming God himself when you curse the worst God you know in your life. See, our words to people and about people must reflect this creation theology. And in verse 10, James just, he just says, will you just stop it? From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Don't do it. When it comes to your speech, always, always do the right thing. Always do the right thing when you're speaking to somebody or when you're talking about another person made in the likeness of God. In 1981, when Ronald Reagan was shot, he was lying in the car, coughing up blood on the way to George Washington University Hospital. When the, when the car arrived, Reagan, he pulled himself out of the limo on his own. He stood up straight, he sucked in his midsection, he hitched up his trousers, he buttoned his suit jacket. And this was vintage Reagan. He was getting himself together. He was always doing the right thing, even when entering the emergency room. And he did it until he crumbled after going about 30 feet. And that is the same way you should think about your tongue, about your words. That always, always say the right thing in whatever situation to whoever the person, no matter what. Always do the right thing. Always say the right thing. Verse 11, Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? See, in Palestine, there are you can go to a freshwater spring and, and you can go to a water spring where there's so much salt content you can't drink it. But there's no spring at all where one day it pours forth fresh water and the next day salt water. There's no spring you can find where you're like, I wonder what the water's going to be like. And you say, oh, it, it, it's salty today. Because it would be absurd. James says, if you're a Christian, you're a, you're a particular kind of water spring. And you're only supposed to produce one kind of water. Fresh water. Sweet water. And to do otherwise, as a believer, 
is, is preposterous. It is unthinkable. It is, it is ludicrous. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Believer, you're, you're one kind of tree. You're a tree rooted in the blood of Christ. You're a tree rooted in the, in the triune God. You're a tree born from heaven. You're a tree marked by righteousness. And you're, you're, you should only bear one kind of fruit. To do otherwise is absurd. And then he returns to, a, in verse 12, to the picture of a, a salt water spring. The idea that salt or salt water could produce fresh water, it, it makes no sense at all. It just makes no sense. Bad things don't produce good things. And so if you're not right with God and you're not walking daily in His presence, you cannot consistently speak pure and helpful words. So what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? Don't trust your personal thoughts about yourself. You're automatically programmed to always justify the things you do and say. We're automatically, by our sin nature, programmed to, to compare ourselves with the worst person you know. Don't trust your feelings about yourself. We are, we are sinfully, we love ourselves too much. James says, examine your words. Listen to your words. And if you're struggling with your mouth, just trying harder won't help. Just exerting more effort won't give you a new vocabulary. What will, though, is possessing the mind of Christ as you employ the, the ordinary means of grace in your life. You don't need to go to some revival to change the way you talk. You just need to open the Word and read it and do it. You just need to believe in the Gospel. You need to, 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 to have a rich prayer life and a, and a robust, robust church life that can transform hellish tongues into tools of heaven. So I close with, every month, my uh, son has a, has a hymn they sing at his school. And, and last, last month, they, they sang a beautiful song. And the hymn famously goes like this, and this is my prayer for us this morning. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power control me all I do and say.